0: Over the next two months, we are going to have two missionary families visit our church. On September the 20th, Mike and Casey Sadich and their three children will be with us. We met the Sadich family three and a half years ago in spring of 2017 when they were heading out to the IMB's Missionary Learning Center in Richmond, Virginia on their way to Indonesia. Indonesia. They are now home on stateside furlough until December, uh, when they will return for another three-year stint. And then the following month, on October 25th, Stephen and Kelly Shaddix and their two girls uh, will join us as they prepare to go to the Czech Republic in the early part of next year. Stephen, many of you will remember, was uh, the youth and music pastor here at this church, uh seven or eight years ago. It's been a while now. Um, But he's well known to our church and he will be with us the last Sunday in October. Then uh, we hope still to have Matt and Emily Tyler with us before the end of the year and definitely before they head back to Shanghai. But their schedule um, under God's providence is at the mercy of COVID and the Chinese government right now. So we don't know when that will be. Now, many of you are new to our church since we were introduced to all of these families. And you may be wondering where these people come from and why they pass through our church on their way uh, to distant locations from which they won't return for years. And the answer is because this is the New Testament way. Before Christ descended on high, he commissioned his church to make disciples of all nations. The word there is ethne, that is ethno-linguistic groups. So when Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, he's not talking about geopolitical Countries of which there are 195 at present in the world. He's talking about ethno linguistic people groups of which there are some 17,426, thousands of which are still unreached. Throughout the book of Acts, which is the record of the first 30 years of the church after Christ's ascension, we see a definite pattern emerge. Not every Christian goes to the nations. Most, in fact, do not. Not every Christian becomes an elder or a deacon. Most do not. Most Christians remain in the same location and the same vocation as they had before they were converted. Their life radically changes as a result of following Christ, but these changes are worked out in the course of their everyday, ordinary world, which doesn't change a whole lot. When a jailer was converted in Philippi in Acts chapter 16, his life was radically altered. His sins were forgiven. He received the Holy Spirit. His family was converted. They were all baptized. And he doubtless became one of the founding members of the church at Philippi that Paul established. But there's no evidence that he left Philippi. Or that he moved out of his house. Or that he quit his job. He probably remained a jailer. There's nothing wrong with being a jailer. We need jailers. They perform a God-ordained function within a fallen human society, as we read in Romans 13. So this man remained a husband, he remained a father, and he remained a jailer. But having been converted and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, he became a godly husband and a godly father and a godly jailer. His approach to each one of those realms of responsibility radically changed, though though the responsibilities themselves remained much the same. He became a more faithful husband, a more patient father, a more just and compassionate jailer. But he didn't become a missionary, so far as we know. All he became was a faithful member of a faithful church at Philippi. And yet, this Philippian jailer played a vital role in the evangelization of the nations. How? Well, I want you to turn with me to the book of Philippians, the first chapter. In verse 5, Paul speaks of his partnership with the church in the gospel from the first day, that's Acts 16, until now. The Philippian church became Paul's ministry partner. How? Well, I can think of three ways that emerge from this letter. First, the church were partners with Paul in the gospel simply by being a Christ-centered gospel-preaching church of baptized believers located in the city of Philippi. Just by being the church, they were partners with Paul in his ministry. Just by living out their Christian profession and continuing the work of ministry that he had begun, they partnered with Paul. Look at verse 27 of Philippians chapter 1. Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come or, and see you or whether I am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Or Philippians 2, verse 14, "...do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine like lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain, nor labor in vain." Paul did not want the saints at Philippi to pack up their lives, leave behind everything they knew and follow him to the mission field. He wanted them to continue being the church and living out the gospel in the field that he had planted them, holding fast to the word of life that he had preached and shining forth the light of Christ that he had ignited in the midst of this dark and crooked and perverse pagan culture of Philippi, striving with him. Side by side, though he's out there and they're in Philippi. They are striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The purpose of planting churches is that they take root and grow where they're planted. Not that they uproot themselves and go someplace else. Rather that they continue to bear fruit, the fruit of the gospel in their native soil. Second. They were partners with Paul in their prayer and their concern for him. Paul was writing to them from prison, probably in Rome, and somehow they had heard of his imprisonment and they were concerned for him. And Paul had heard about their concern, and so he wrote to assure them that he was doing just fine. He was safe in the providence of God. Philippians 1.12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And then he recounts how the whole praetorian guard had heard the gospel because of his confinement. And the church there at Rome had, been, had grown in their boldness for Christ to speak the gospel with more courage because of his own bold witness. He then assures them that he is blessed whether his imprisonment ends in death or whether it ends in his release. In fact, he says, I'm not really sure which of the two I would prefer. To live is Christ, to die is gain. To live means more effective service in the gospel. To die means being with Christ, which he says is better by far. Nevertheless, he says, I know, verse 19, that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. I know that you're praying for me, and that's how I know everything's going to be fine. And it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So the saints at Philippi, like the jailer, they loved Paul. They were concerned for Paul. They thought of Paul. They prayed for Paul. The relationship that Paul had with the Philippian church was not one in which he passed through every three years or so, and then they never thought of him in between. He was a part of their church. Though he was absent in body, he was present in spirit. Third. They were partners with Paul in the gospel through their financial support. Ministry takes money. Missions takes money. And this church had supported Paul from the beginning, which freed him up to travel and to minister throughout the Roman Empire. Paul alludes to this back in chapter two when he speaks of a young man named Epaphroditus who had traveled from Philippi to, the, to Rome and had brought this financial gift from the church to Paul. He calls Epaphroditus your messenger and my minister, or your your messenger and your minister to my need. But it turns out Epaphroditus had contracted an illness, probably en route, and he nearly died in bringing this financial gift to Paul. He says in verse 30, he risked his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. In chapter 4, then, Paul explicitly references the financial partnership that he had with the Philippian church. Verse 10 I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The concern which they had revived for him means financial aid. And the fact that that's true is demonstrated by the fact that Paul immediately begins to talk finances. He says that they had no opportunity for this concern. That is, they had no opportunity to express their concern through financial support because they didn't know where he was. They didn't know which jail he was in. And furthermore, he was too far away. But when they heard that he was in prison in Rome, they collected an offering. They sent it with Epaphroditus. So Paul continues verse 14, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership. There's that word again into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only even in Thessalonica. You sent me help for my needs more than once, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, which are a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable to God, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. From the very beginning, from Acts 16, the Philippian church had partnered with Paul financially. Supplying his needs for the mission to which God had called him. And they sent aid to him again and again and again. And Paul was exceedingly grateful. In fact, he considered their financial support as if it were a fragrant offering and sacrifice offered up to God. So the church at Philippi was not filled with missionaries. It was filled with normal, ordinary people a wealthy merchant who sold purple cloth, a formerly demon-possessed slave girl who used to be a fortune teller but was cleansed of an evil spirit, and a jailer with his wife and kids, among numerous other normal, ordinary, converted people. In other words, the church at Philippi was just like us. You see, God does not call every person to be a missionary, not if you define missions accurately as cross-cultural evangelization with the goal of establishing a self-sustaining, self-evangelizing indigenous New Testament church. That's the definition of missions. Missions is not walking across your street and evangelizing your neighbor. That's evangelism. God doesn't call all people to pack up their lives and move to a different culture. He doesn't call every person to be a missionary. Rather, God calls some men and women to leave behind their home and their culture and their way of life and to go to the ends of the earth where Christ has not been named or is not being named and to make his name known. The rest of us He instructs to bloom where we are planted, shining the light of Christ and bearing fruit for the gospel in our own community. Philippi did not need another missionary like Paul. They had the church to carry out their mission. They they did not need Paul to stay there in person. They had pastors to teach them and deacons to serve them. Likewise, Nixa does not need missionaries. They have us. It is our responsibility to carry on the work of the gospel here while we partner with missionaries out there. God does not call all Christians to be missionaries, but he calls all churches to be missional churches. Sending those missionaries out who will make Christ known where he is not known. And in this way, the church fulfills the great commission to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things that he has commanded us. In other words, to make disciples and plant churches where new believers will likewise shine with the light of Christ where they are and send missionaries out where they are none. This is the New Testament way. Now I mentioned last week that Romans fifteen fourteen is a transitional verse in Romans. The main body of the letter runs from Romans 116 to 1513. Fifteen chapters of Christ exalting truth, defining and applying the gospel of the righteousness of God. Paul has canvas topics like the depravity of man. Justification in Christ, sanctification by the Spirit, sovereign election as it pertains particularly to Israel, and finally, the implications of the gospel for the church. A good outline for the first 15 chapters of Romans would be this redemption required, that's chapters 1 to 3, redemption accomplished. Chapters 3 to 5. Redemption applied, 6, 7, and 8. Redemption designed, chapters 9 through 11. And then redemption lived out, chapters 12 through 15. Two years. We've spent two years walking through those 15 chapters, those five broad categories. And now we're done. The main body of Romans is, is brought to an end with this soaring benediction in Romans fifteen thirteen. When Paul prays for the church and prays for us now, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Hope, joy, and peace ought to be the fruit of this gospel among us. And it's my prayer for you that the past two years have and will continue to fill you with all joy and peace through faith by the power of the Holy Spirit that you may abound in hope. That's what Romans is for. Romans is fuel for joy. It is ballast for peace. It is grounds for hope. And, and I desire fervently and passionately that First Baptist Nixa would be a joyful, peaceful, hopeful people through faith in the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because those are the only kind of churches that can be missional churches. Wouldn't that be a tremendous testimony in Nixa? Those folks at First Baptist Nixa sure are a happy people. They are unshakably joyful. They are unnervingly holy and they are indomitably hopeful. And if you believe the truths of Romans that we've unpacked over the last two years, if you plant those truths deep into your mind and into your heart and into your soul, you will be, you will abound in hope. But at verse 14, the tone changes. Paul becomes less doctrinal, less instructive. And although I hate the phrase, he becomes less preachy, becomes more personal. The time for theology and teaching has ended. And he returns to that epistolary letter writing style that marked chapter one all the way up to verse 15. And the remainder of chapter 15 before he concludes with a final chapter of greetings can only be described as a missionary support letter. Periodically, our church receives such letters, people heading out to the foreign mission field, they're looking for local churches uh, to partner with them, and and we we can't acquiesce to every request. So we have to have certain criteria by which we judge potential mission partners. And we'll discuss next week what that criteria ought to be. I think they ought to look, well, like Paul. But this week, this week we're going to look at the church that Paul wants to partner with. So if we're looking for for missionaries that look like Paul, we ought to be churches that look like the kind of church that Paul wanted to partner with, namely the church at Rome. So after a brief commendation of the church at Rome... Verse 14, which we'll cover today, Paul brings out his ministry resume. He says, But on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit in, in Christ Jesus. Then I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power. Of signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. So, Paul establishes his missionary calling, his missionary purpose, his missionary methods, and his missionary work. Then he sets forth his future designs in general. He says, And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named. Lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see and those who have never heard will understand. Paul says, I have no intention of building on what has already been erected. I have no intention of planting where I've already sown. I'm going to leave that to others, to pastors like Timothy and Titus to cultivate those fields. Paul says, I want to go further. I want to push to the frontier I want to go where no man has gone before. And it's not that he's abandoning the eastern reaches of the Roman Empire. Far from it. He's not abandoning them. He planted churches there. Precisely so that they could carry on the mission. But his calling and the calling of every missionary is to take the gospel where the gospel is not. To make Christ known where Christ is not known. If Christ were already known there, if the gospel were already present there, they wouldn't need a missionary. So yes, I think churches ought to prioritize frontier missions to unreached peoples. But we'll talk more about that next week. Next then, Paul comes to the point and he presents a specific request. Look at verse 22. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you, but now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. First, he says, though, I need to go to Jerusalem. I need to deliver this offering that I've collected among the Macedonian churches for the famine-stricken churches of Judea, verses 28 and 29. When therefore I've completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. It's a missionary letter. You're the church I want to partner with. Here's the way I go about missions. Here's my future plans. Will you join me? The question is, was he right? Did Paul make it to Rome in the fullness of the blessing of Christ? Did he enjoy fellowship with them, receive provision from them before heading out to Spain and to regions unknown? Well, you'll have to stay tuned to find out. We'll answer that question in the coming weeks. What I want you to get from this overview of the second half of Romans 15 is Paul's purpose in writing Romans. Okay, here are the main points. You can follow along on your bulletin. Paul did not establish the church at Rome. He'd never been to Rome. Number two, therefore he could not be certain of their doctrine. He'd heard good things regarding them, which is our focus this morning, but they had not had the benefit of his presence and his teaching. Number three, so Paul wrote to them a comprehensive summary of his gospel. Romans is not a systematic theology, but it's pretty close. It's a declaration of redemption, required, accomplished, applied, designed, and lived out. And along the way, Paul touches on every major doctrinal topic that you would find in a modern theology textbook. Scripture, God, man, Christ, salvation, the church, last things, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. It's all in here, in these 15 glorious chapters. So why did Paul write his longest theological work to a church that he had never visited? It was precisely because he had never visited them. He'd had three years to teach and instruct the church at Ephesus. He'd had 18 months to do the same for the church at Corinth. All he had was 15 chapters to instruct the church at Rome and set them upon a solid doctrinal foundation. And why was that important? Because missionaries cannot partner with churches that do not share the same theological commitments. And churches cannot partner with missionaries who hold the different doctrine. It won't work. And Paul knew that. So when he finally arrived in Rome, he did not want to spend his time correcting errors and refuting heresy. He wanted to come to them in joy and be refreshed in their company. And so he wrote Romans and sent it ahead of him. Fourth, after a journey to Jerusalem to deliver the aid collected for the starving saints in Judea, he planned to come to Rome. And then finally, after a brief stay in Rome which he hoped would be mutually beneficial. He hoped to benefit from them and he hoped they would benefit from him. Then he wanted Rome to send him off to take the gospel to the West, to Spain and who knows where beyond that. Maybe Gaul, maybe Germania, maybe Britannia. But wherever it was, you could be sure Paul was headed to the frontier where Christ was not known. And you have to admire his His courage. But more on that again next week. That's what we're looking for. We're looking for courageous missionaries to partner with. But I want to spend the remainder of our time looking at one verse or two. And the beginning of this new section, Paul writes in verse 14, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. Back in chapter one in verse eight, Paul said, I've heard something else about you. He says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because of your faith, which is proclaimed in all the world, right? So we're going to look at chapter one and verse eight. We're going to look at chapter 15 and verse 14, and we're going to put them together and we're going to get a picture of the church at Rome that Paul wanted to partner with in the mission of the gospel to where Christ had not been named. Paul says, I was satisfied about these things concerning you well how did he know well probably from the numerous contacts that paul had with others that he met in the cities of the uh, roman empire people like priscilla and aquila they're in rome now Um, he had worked with them he'd lived with them in corinth and in ephesus and he was looking forward to reuniting with them in rome if paul had not been satisfied that the roman church possessed these qualities he would not have wanted to partner with them So just like we have criteria by which we decide who we will partner with, what kind of missionaries we want to enter into partnership with, even so, the good missionaries have criteria by which they decide whom they will partner with. Missions partnerships are, are mutual commitments with mutual qualifications and mutual responsibilities. What are those qualifications? There's any number of ways we could answer that question, but just using these two verses, I think we find four characteristics that make a good missions partner church. All right? Four qualifications. Number one, faith. This comes from chapter 1 where Paul says that their faith is proclaimed in all the world. The Roman church was a believing church. Someone had already taken the gospel to them, which is not surprising because Rome was the hub of the Roman Empire. All roads lead to Rome, right? So people were constantly passing through Rome who would have brought news from this backwater province of Judea of a Galilean Jew, a teacher and a prophet who some claimed to be uh, the second coming of Elijah and who some claimed to be John the Baptist risen from the dead, but who claimed himself to be the son of God who had died on the Roman cross and risen again on the third day, whose disciples proclaimed that they would receive the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life in his name to all who would repent and trust in him, that he would grant to them reconciliation with their creator and eternal life in new heaven and a new earth. The Romans had heard that gospel It shouldn't surprise us. Acts chapter 2 and verse 10 says there were visitors in Rome in Jerusalem on Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell upon the church like a mighty rushing wind and they spoke in all of the various tongues of the Roman Empire. And Peter stood up and he preached Christ as Lord and commanded the people to repent and be baptized. That had been 25 years earlier. However, it was they had received the gospel and they had believed the gospel. There was a church at Rome comprised of Christians, those who were called to belong to Jesus Christ and loved by God and called to be saints, according to verses 6 and 7. The church at Rome knew the gospel, they believed the gospel, and Paul knew that they did. All he needed to give them, according to verse 15, was a reminder So we learn that if we want to be a missional church, if we want to be a church to whom God sends missionaries to partner with and from whom he sends them out again, we need to be a church whose faith is famous, whose faith is proclaimed in all the world, like the church at Antioch, like the church at Philippi, like the church at Rome. If we want to be a missional church, we need to believe the gospel. Number two. Paul says they were full of goodness, verse 14 of chapter 15. Goodness is an interesting word. It's only used in biblical Greek. Paul uses the word in Galatians 5.22, for instance, where it's listed as a fruit of the spirit. It could be translated as kindness. It could be translated as generosity. And we get a pretty good idea of the meaning of this word if we consider its opposite, mean and stingy. Mean and stingy churches don't make good missional churches. Good churches, that is kind and generous churches, make good missional churches. Kindness and generosity, that is goodness, cannot be faked because it cuts too close to the core of man's idols, self and money. Thus, goodness is the fruit of the Spirit, Neither can goodness be taught. You can't teach someone to be kind. You can't teach someone to be generous. Either they're kind or they're not. Either they're generous or they're not. And the church of Rome was, Paul says, in fact, they were filled with goodness, which is an incredible compliment, and it's a worthy goal for First Baptist Nixa. I don't remember which of my children asked me a while back what I wanted them to be when they grow up. You know, that's a conversation that kids often have with each other, and sometimes they involve their parents in it. What do you want me to be? What would make you proud, Dad? What what do you want me to be when I grow up? And my answer was, I want you to be kind. Because wealthy, successful people are a dime a dozen. But genuinely kind, generous people are rare and they're treasures. And the same is true of churches. So may God give grace to us to be kind and generous, filled with goodness that we may be a missional church. It's no wonder that Paul wanted to partner with Rome and come to them so badly. He says in verse 32, I knew that I would be refreshed there. So ask yourself, is First Baptist Nixa a refreshing place? Are we kind and generous? I think we are, but we're not really the best judges of that, are we? We'll see what the Sadiches and the Shaddixes say when they come. Because my prayer is that they will leave here refreshed. Third, a missional church must have knowledge. In fact, Paul says the church at Rome was filled with all knowledge. I understand this to be a, a reference to doctrinal orthodoxy, to integrity and commitment to the doctrines of the faith. The church at Rome knew the Christian faith. They were able to discern truth from error and they were committed to the truth. A heretical church can never be a missional church because you can't partner with missionaries if your own house is burning. You cannot send out missionaries to proclaim the gospel if you are unsure what the gospel is. You will not sacrifice comfort to make the name of Christ known where it is not known if you're not committed to the truth that unless the nations hear the name of Christ and believe on the name of Christ, they will not be saved. There has never been a missional church ever on the face of the earth that has capitulated on the exclusivity of Christ. Why? Because inclusivism robs missions of all of its motivation. There's never been a missional church that has not known and believed and breathed and bled the truth that Paul. Enumerated for us in Romans chapter 10 that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how will they call on him in whom they've not believed and how will they believe in him they've not heard and how will they hear unless somebody preaches and how will they preach unless they're sent churches that don't believe that don't make good missional churches. And I'm really tempted, I'm going to resist it, but I'm really tempted to just pause here and tell you the story of how Andrew Fuller and William Carey, both Calvinists, by the way, saved the English Baptists from the anti-missional hyper-Calvinism at the end of the 18th century and sparked the modern mission movement, which again was spearheaded by Baptists. How did they do it? They did it by writing. They imparted knowledge to the English Baptist churches that those churches had lacked, William Carey's an inquiry into the obligations of churches to use means for the conversion of the heathens. They knew how to title books back then. And Andrew Fuller's The Gospel Worthy of All Acceptation. Those two truths were read throughout the English Baptist world at the end of the 18th century, and they hammered home this truth with startling clarity. Now, the challenge in our day is not from the hyper-Calvinist who says, when God is pleased to convert the heathen, he will do it without your help and mine. Those words were actually spoken by a Baptist minister to William Carey when he suggested that they ought to be doing missions. That's not, that's not so much our concern today. Our concern comes from the inclusivist who says, God is not so severe as to condemn men who do not worship God according to your narrow interpretation. After all, there's a wideness to God's mercy. Churches who fall on either side of that ditch, who give in to either one of those or a hundred other heresies, don't make missional churches. Paul knew it, which is why he wrote Romans, to ensure that the church knew the gospel, to ensure that they had all knowledge. That is, doctrinal integrity and commitment. Those characteristics are essential to a missional church. Finally, a missional church must have wisdom. Paul says the Roman church was able to instruct one another. Literally, they were competent to counsel. They had the wisdom and the maturity to take the Bible and apply it to the diverse needs of the congregation. And he's not just talking about the elders. He's not just talking about the deacons. He's talking about the whole congregation. They knew how to counsel one another when there were members going through divorce or suffering from cancer or grieving the loss of a loved one or ensnared by sin. They knew how to take the Bible and give comfort and encouragement and exhortation and admonition and instruct to one another, which points to their spiritual maturity and spiritual health. Again, a church whose own house is burning is in no position to partner with a missionary. Because what if the missionary gets on the field, depending upon that church's financial support, but while he's there, the church splits in two because two members of the church had an affair and, and, and the church split into different factions or, or because the church treasurer embezzled the church's funds and now they don't have any money with which to support the missionary who's already on the field. That doesn't happen in a wise church. Why? Because wise churches don't sin? no. Because wise churches know how to deal with sin when it happens. A wise church is a stable church. It is a healthy church. And a stable and healthy church is able to provide financial and emotional support to missionaries on the field. God is calling First Baptist Nixa to be a missional church. And I want to be clear, I don't mean that in the generic God is calling every church to be a missional church sort of way. I mean, God has providentially gathered the saints of First Baptist Nixa with all of our diverse gifts and our diverse passions and our diverse resources for such a time as this. He's already begun sending missionaries to us. We are a new Antioch. We are a new Philippi. We've already be- begun. The time has come to press down on the accelerator and become a channel of God's mercy to the nations. That's why by God's providence, we're here in Romans 15, which is all about missions and missional churches. So let me recap us this morning. What characteristics does a missional church possess? A missional church possesses faith, goodness, that is kindness and generosity. Knowledge, that is doctrinal commitment and integrity, and wisdom, the wisdom to take the Bible, apply it to the messy lives of our people in order that we can remain a stable and healthy church, able to support missionaries both financially and emotionally. And what does a missional church do? They partner with missionaries by proclaiming Christ in word and deed where they are planted by praying for missionaries out of genuine love and concern, and by providing the financial resources required for the mission. I look at this picture of the church at Rome, and I ask, why not us? Why not now? Let's get serious about the mission of the church, which is to make Christ known in Nixa and among the nations where he has not been named. Let's pray. Our Father, I pray that you will take this message and that you will cause us to think about our role in the Great Commission. Where does First Baptist Nixa fit in Christ's command to his church to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you? How are we going to reach China? China. How are we going to reach Indonesia? How are we going to reach India? How are we going to reach Ghana? How are we going to reach Seattle? How are we going to reach any number of 17,500 ethnic people groups who need to hear the name of Christ or else they won't be saved? How are we going to do it? Make us a missional church that is faithful and kind and generous and committed to the truth and wise in order that we may be stable and healthy so that we may partner with the missionaries that you send our way by continuing the work here at First Baptist Nixa of the proclamation of the gospel, by being fervent and faithful in prayers for our missionary partners on the field, and by being faithful to financially provide for those whom you have called out from among us to go and to make Christ known. Make First Baptist Nixa a missional church. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.